I am not a nostalgist, just to correct you. I have zero nostalgia. I'm interested in stories because they're relevant today. When I write a story about Marie-Therese von Hammerstein in Germany in 1938, you know, I found a picture of this young German woman on a motorcycle and I saw her name and I did some research and I found out, oh my God, her father was the head of the Wehrmacht and before Hitler. And he continued being head of the Wehrmacht during Hitler. But here was this woman who married a Jew who was like ferrying Jewish intellectuals to safety in the early 30s to get them away from Hitler. Well, there's an incredible story that's like action-adventure drama that anybody would be interested in. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. The electric vehicle revolution is here. It may still be early days, and it may be years before we know what a truly electric future will look like on our roads, but the race is on. As of 2019, there were nearly 800 EV startups operating around the world, and together they've raised tens of billions of dollars in funding. Cars, trucks, public transit, delivery vehicles. If it's on wheels, chances are someone has figured out how to take it electric Paul DeLorleans is possibly the world's foremost authority on the EV revolution happening on two wheels. He's also the world's foremost authority on anything happening on two wheels. Paul is not only a motorcycle enthusiast, he's a motorcycle archivist. He's a connection to the nearly 150-year history of motorized two-wheel travel and a bit of a vintage fashionista. And he's also my guest today. Paul is the creator of the widely read blog, The Vintage He's authored numerous books on motorcycles, including the first ever book about electric motorcycles called The Current. Most recently, he spun off part of his blog into an EV-centered newsletter called The Current News. Paul has also become one of the most in-demand curators of classic and vintage motorcycle exhibits in the world. And in 2019, he launched the first ever exhibit of electric motorcycles at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Its name? What else? Electric Revolution. Speaking of transportation, I spoke to Paul from his home in San Francisco on a fairly busy traffic day. You're going to hear many city buses and maybe even a motorcycle or two on this episode, but please stay tuned because you're not going to want to miss this road trip. Paul Darlene's relationship with motorcycles began as a teenager growing up in Stockton, California. His family has a long history in San Francisco stretching back generations, but his father took a job as a professor at Stockton's University of the Pacific, and when Paul was born, he became the first of his family not to be born in the Golden City. In the 1970s, Stockton was a blue-collar town, and its streets were rough. Paul's first motorcycle was a tiny 50cc that he used to get to school so he could avoid riding the bus. Stockton at the time was murder capital of the USA. 
And I didn't really fancy taking a bus at night. So I asked my mom for a loan of $200 to buy a little 50cc Honda moped. It's not actually a moped. It was a, it was a proper motorcycle. And she did. And that started me off. So it was liberation all around. I was like liberated from the nightmare of my high school and uh, liberated by, you know, learning about two wheels. What really wasn't until after college, though, after university, I went to UC Santa Cruz, that I really got into motorcycles in a big way. So that was about 1984. So let's go back to Stockton. So Stockton, to me, is still a little bit of a steel town. It's like it's, you know, it's industrial, right? So what was it like growing up there? Well, you know, there were bucolic aspects in that era. One was able to send one's children out for the day with a bicycle and a little allowance money. They come back at dinner time, you know, on weekends and in summer. So in that sense, it was very free. But it was also, you know, I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s, and that was a super tumultuous time. And Stockton was a dangerous place. So I had to be mindful about you know, I cultivated a kind of street smarts or at least street awareness from an early age. But, you know, I was a kid, so I mostly had fun. I was very independent. I mean, in 1968, my mother left the family to pursue a very independent path. So basically, I had to be really independent because my father raised me. He raised all of us, basically. So, you know, kudos and God bless to him. I also had a split vision of kind of parental examples of parenting. One was, you know, my father was steady as a rock, always kept the same job and was just there for us. And then I had my mother who was like off doing her creative thing, living in a commune for a while and kind of moving around. And she was an entrepreneur and an independent business person and very creative. So I saw both possibilities that were wildly divergent and... I've experienced kind of both in my own life. I haven't had a job per se since I was 21. I've always been independent and and creating my own businesses. In the 1980s, Paul left Stockton to attend UC Santa Cruz and graduated with an art degree. He started his first business working as a freelance muralist and interior decorative painter in San Francisco. 1984 was the start of kind of a pretty hot, movement towards interior decorative painting, like they called it faux finishing. And so I looked at what people were doing and I said, well, I can do that. I'm a painter. (laughs) I was very facile with glazes and, you know, techniques for painting. And so I just had to look at what someone had done and I could deconstruct the process and then replicate it. I was shocked that my degree became my career. (laughs) That in fact, the art degree everybody told me was going to be totally useless (laughs) in fact, became a very profitable career for 25 years. So yeah, I mean, after I graduated, I just went literally door to door until I cultivated a business and had enough referrals that I was getting commercial clients. And as my clientele got better, I was able to suggest, well, you know, perhaps we could do this and that. And I was always an excellent colorist. I made all my own colors. And so as my career progressed, I basically just became known for a person who could walk into your house and completely do custom everything and various different kinds of finishes, glazes and murals. And at one point, I included Venetian plaster, what's called Venetian plaster and various plastering techniques as well. Just kind of anything. I mean, I was just capable of doing anything and I did everything so that I never got bored. Did you start riding a motorcycle in Santa Cruz or did that happen in the city? 
When I moved to San Francisco, a motorcycle is a very convenient form of transportation. And so I bought a motorcycle, an old BMW, but I had a, a friend who was a journeyman printer and he suggested that we install a lithographic press, a multi-leth press in my basement. It's actually my mother's basement because she had space. And we printed up booklets and posters for punk shows and political rallies, books of poetry and all sorts of stuff from our kind of friend circle. So this is like 1984. This is sort of the punk slash anarchist slash activist sort of scene that was happening pretty strongly in San Francisco. And my friend's name, Jim Gilman, Jim was a huge fan of vintage bikes. And he rode around on a 1950 BMW R50 that he had found under a staircase. And he would let me ride the bike around. And eventually he, he gifted me every issue of classic bike and classic motorcycle, which in 1984 was like one milk crate, maybe two milk crates, because they'd only been publishing for a couple of years. And I just completely devoured those uh, magazines. And I tell people it was like handing me the crack, the pipe and the match, you know, <laughs> I just was hooked. <laughs> I, I had a whole cadre of friends. So, so just to, to back up and give a little background, what was happening in San Francisco in the 80s, there was actually an incredibly strong vintage motorcycle scene, but it was not like uh, a collector scene. This was people, young people, kind of a post-punk rejection of what had become of the motorcycle industry by the mid-80s, which was plasticization. It's like people who were uninterested in new motorcycles because they were ugly and plastic and loved the aesthetic of older bikes and kind of got into, let's say, a neo-rocker scene, kind of a neo-cafe racer scene. So I had a motorcycle club called the Road Holders which is the name of the front forks of a Norton. They're called road holders. And we, there was another club in town called the British Death Fleet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we all rode like Triumphs and Nortons and BSAs to bars at night. And we went on rides together. And it was an awesome scene. It was a really, really strong and vital alternative motorcycle scene. But, you know, this was no ordinary unemployed hooligan club. This was like people who all had co college educations but loved tearing around on old British motorcycles. And we didn't know it at the time, but when I started writing books about cafe racer culture, I've written two, I've discovered that there were other scenes in other countries happening at the same time, but there was no internet and really no press about it. But, you know, it was like this funny, spontaneous zeitgeist of kind of this neo cafe racer scene that was happening in London. There was a club called the Mean Fuckers in London, and there were a couple of others you know, and they started the Ace Cafe Revival way back in like 1988, 89. But you know, San Francisco is a challenging city to ride in. You know, it's a small city, but there are some steep hills. You can detour and bypass them. So riding a, a vintage bike in, in, in San Francisco, I mean, just describe that experience. Uh, it wasn't difficult then. In fact, before the 89 earthquake, we had this incredible freeway that looped from North Beach, which is where all the punk clubs were, around the skyscrapers of downtown at the edge of the bay that looped back into the freeway system. You could either get on the Bay Bridge or you could go deeper into the city. And oh my God, at three in the morning after getting out of a club to get on my Norton Atlas and tear around this huge arc through the lights of these skyscrapers, it was like being in Blade Runner or something. It was beautiful. I loved riding around the city. I mean, 
there was nobody on the streets in the middle of the night in those days. Nowadays, there's traffic 24 hours a day, but I used to ride literally on the footpaths in the dirt in Golden Gate Park on a Wednesday and would encounter no one. I wouldn't be tearing along. I'd just be putting along and having some fun and no one ever bothered us. And we would race from the hate out to the ocean after the bars closed and muck around on the beach and stuff. And no one ever harassed us. And you just could not do things like that today. Back in the 80s, when you were living in San Francisco, you took off and you went on a motorcycle road trip to Europe all the way to the Soviet border. Can you describe what was leading up to that trip? Because that to me is fascinating. The dissolve of Soviet Union was beginning to happen. So that was a pretty courageous trip. Yeah. So because I was starting to collect motorcycles at that point, I was reaching out to people in other countries. So I had friends in Berlin. I had a lot of friends in London, Amsterdam, et cetera. And so I was encouraged by a friend in London to take a trip in 1987 out to the Eastern Bloc to buy old motorcycles because there were quite a few ex-military and other machines and they were quote unquote dirt cheap. And there were lots of them according to this person. So I got my visas and actually literally the day before I left, a friend of mine was having their house painted by a Polish house painter. And he said, oh my God, you're going to Poland. I have an apartment in Warsaw. Here are the keys. Here's my mother's phone number. Have a great time. (laughs) So my girlfriend and I, Denise Leitzel and I, she rode as well. We went to London. We bought two little two-stroke MZ motorcycles and rode them around in London for about six weeks. I had to rebuild both before we left in the living room. We were staying in a squat in an area that's now underneath a uh, shopping mall at Elephant and Castle. So I managed to hook in with some friends who had a long established place and they had room and they didn't mind me rebuilding the motorcycle in their living room. (laughs) And so from there, we went off and went, visited a friend in Holland and visited a friend in Berlin and made our first foray into the East, East Berlin with that friend and got to see the heart of the Eastern Bloc, what that looked like and what that felt like. And, you know, it was pretty tense and creepy, to be completely honest. Did you make it into Russia? No. Soviet Union would not allow you into the country on a motorcycle because they couldn't follow you. The KGB didn't use motorcycles. They used cars. So we could have gone in in a car because they can follow you in a car. But a motorcycle was a little too independent for their comfort zone. And at that time, everybody, every Western traveler who entered the country was followed. And that was also true in all the other Eastern Bloc countries, more Soviet Union and East Germany, the DDR. The, The Stasi would follow your every footstep, which tells you two things, that it was a a quite elaborate mechanism of surveillance, and two, that not many people were visiting from the West. So what did you take from all that experience coming back stateside? One is that there is a universal currency among motorcyclists. <laughs> if you are a motorcycle enthusiast or rider, you have an instant connection with every other motorcycle rider in the world. That was cool. We made a lot of friends. And of course, people who weren't into motorcycles. People were incredibly friendly in the Eastern Bloc. So now you have this international flair, this universal motorcycle tribe and community. Had you started thinking then about, wow, maybe this is like, I I should do something with this knowledge and this passion or? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) You're just having a good time. 
<laughs> yeah, basically. I was actively buying and selling motorcycles. I was collecting motorcycles. I was repairing them. I was selling them as a sideline from my regular business, like forever, from 84 until I probably quit about 10 years ago. So you're just doing this just as a hobby? Just as a hobby. And the reason I got so into research and accumulating information in books is because there was no information available on the internet. Hello. So if you came across a 1959 Ambassador two-stroke with a Villiers engine, how in the world were you going to know anything about it? So I bought every magazine I could find, and I bought every book I could find. And Pretty soon, I had thousands of books about motorcycles and boxes and boxes and boxes of magazines going back to the turn of the century. And, you know, I read them because I was interested in the subject. So I developed quite an extensive knowledge about the history of motorcycle and the industries and also the subcultures. And people began to recognize that. Other collectors, because I was meeting collectors around the world and eventually traveling around the world to various parts of Europe or Australia and buying bikes in South America. And in the 80s and the 90s, you could find very rare motorcycles, let's say, in Uruguay or in Argentina or in Australia that were really pretty cheap. And so I bought five rough superiors from South America in the 80s and 90s and all sorts of amazing racing motorcycles from Australia. I once brought a whole shipping container full of old bikes from Australia. And when the Australian dollar was at 50, you know, basically half the US dollar. And, you know, I, I did quite well with it and had a lot of fun too. You know, I got to try everything because I owned hundreds of motorcycles. And, you know, the ones that ran, I would ride around and see if I liked them. And it was kind of like a, a winnowing process. I bought things because they had a great reputation, whether in racing or in riding, and I was able to try out that reputation when I bought them. In the late 90s and into the early 2000s, Paul started to notice some momentum building around motorcycles and popular culture. Motorcycle exhibits were starting to pop up around the world, and even Harley-Davidson culture was starting to make its way into TV, film, and even fashion. Paul had been documenting his experiences for years, taking photographs of his travels and the bikes he'd see and buy and ride. He needed an outlet for the backlog of images he'd saved, and around 2006, the idea came to him. So in, in 2006, Google was promoting blogs at the time. Google was, had, a, had a system called Blogger, where anybody could start a blog, and they were using kind of a pyramid scheme to encourage people to start their own blog. So if you follow the blog, if you wanted to make a comment, it was easier for you to make a comment if you started a blog. That was their trick. So I was always interested in fashion, have always dressed well, and I was on the Sartorialist blog in October of 2006. And I wanted to comment on my own <laughs> outfit. <laughs> so it asked me to start, you know, what was my blog name? And I said, ah, okay, I'll start The Vintagent. And that literally October 2006 was the origin point of The Vintagent as a blog. And I had no idea about this new technology, but I had a, a lot of photographs from events and from collecting about old bikes. And so I just started posting photos with, at first, you know, one or two sentences and then. As I learned how to play that instrument, I became much, much more elaborate. And I decided at one point within a year, 
I was I was already getting traction, and I decided, okay, I'm going to post something every two days. Boom. And I made a commitment to doing that. And within six months, my audience had grown exponentially. And my best friend, who's far more business savvy than I am, says, hey, man, this is your next career. I'm like, just because I've got 500 people a day commenting on my thing? He says, yeah, you don't understand. This is the future. And he was, of course, absolutely right. And so um, I developed the Vintagent, and I, within two or three years, was asked to write articles for magazines like Cycle World and other magazines around the world. And pretty soon I was asked to write books. What fascinates me about the vision when I go, there's just there's a whole cultural component that you described the evolution of things in your life, right? There's a culture component, there's there's just knowledge, and there's a lot of history. But kind of the bit of a collector crab of all this goodness that you'd been absorbing, being not just a writer, but a traveler and having this international. Can you describe what the what Finchinet really means to you? And it really has changed the texture of how we, we read and learn and historically preserve the, the two-wheel culture, right? Yeah. I mean, for the Vintagent, motorcycles are basically just an excuse to tell a good story. So very quickly, I moved a, away from, let's say, tech from the just exploring, you know, what is this? Okay, we've got a 1925 Sunbeam. Really not many people are that interested in the tech around it, like that it has four speeds and these are the gear ratios and this is the cam timing and all that stuff. It's like, okay, if you're really interested, you can look at a manual for that stuff. What was much more interesting was the story around the bike, which, and that could be the story around its origin or the factory or the, the history of the factory or how I came about owning a Sunbeam or two or three and what it's like to ride one. And I just found fairly quickly using this medium that every possible story could be broken down and every fragment was a totality in itself, right? So if you just wanted to talk about, let's say, the styling of a 1925 Sunbeam, well, that leads you off into all these other paths about enameling, because Sunbeam was renowned for the quality of its enamelware. It's like, well, why is that? Well, actually, they were making artificial or, let's say, replica Chinese enamelware. It's like, oh, well, what's Chinese enamelware? And then you go back to the history of enameling and international trade between Britain and China. And, you know, you can just go anywhere just from that little reference point. And that's what I love about the possibility of telling stories is you can find something fascinating in just about anything. So I think that's been the longevity of of the Vintagent for me, because we're pushing 16 years now, is that there's an infinity of cool stories to tell. Well, and I think that's one of the things is that you really do take people on an experience. So you're preserving the history, but you're using it as knowledge for the future. So can we talk about where we are now, which is in this whole electrical revolution. And you wrote a book called Current, which, you know, is really different than your other books, but it's really relevant and timely to what's happening. And so, you know, you have decades of experience. Let's talk about your thoughts of not just, you know, not losing the hold of the past, but the change that's about to happen and why it is important to understand this change. And how do we still hang on to the past, but migrate to this change? Yeah, I mean, my first encounter with electric motorcycles was a dear friend of mine who actually used to work for me 
and who was a business genius, was president of a company called Fuse Project. Yves Bahar, who's an internationally famous industrial designer, it was his basically his design company. And in 2008, Mitchell Pergola told me that they were working on an electric motorcycle with a bunch of guys, ex-Tesla employees. And Eve was designing the, the shape of that motorcycle. And I was, <laughs> my mind was kind of blown. It's like, okay, you know, having watched the, the origin of Tesla, because it's fairly local to me in San Francisco, I've wondered, you know, is there going to be a knock-on for motorcycles? So Mitchell said, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll give you first crack at actually breaking the story when the bike is ready. And they did. So in January, early January 2009, I was able to be the first press anywhere to break the story of the world's first electric superbike. Who knew that 10 years later, I would have that bike in one of my Peterson exhibits. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. While Paul De Orleans is a leading voice on the EV revolution on two wheels, Jay Giroux, the co-founder of Damon Motorcycles, is working to make electric motorcycles ubiquitous throughout the world. The motorcycle side in the world is actually, it dwarfs the number of vehicles driven. Of course, it's not being addressed in the way that the car industry is being addressed by dozens and dozens of electric car companies today. But two thirds of the human population cannot get to work without a motorcycle. It's not about incomes, it's not about affluence, it's about actually moving at more than three miles an hour. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. How do you get people to go to something like the Peterson Museum and see these collections that you pull together and, and not you lose sight of that, but still understand where we've been. Well, that's really my job, <laughs> is to find ways to reach out to people in ways that are interesting. I mean, you said earlier that you, didn't, you felt like you didn't have to know about motorcycles to read the vintage. Well, that's kind of the idea behind the exhibits, is to make them fun. I'm not going to force anything down anybody's throat. And the most boring thing in the world anybody wants to hear is somebody going, blah, blah, blah. This is how it used to be. I am not a nostalgist, just to correct you. I have zero nostalgia. I'm interested in stories because they're relevant today. You know, when I write a story about Marie-Therese von Hammerstein in Germany in 1938, you know, I found a picture of this young German woman on a motorcycle and I saw her name and I did some research and I found out, oh my God, her father was the head of the Wehrmacht and before Hitler. And he continued being head of the Wehrmacht during Hitler. But here was this woman who married a Jew who was like ferrying Jewish intellectuals like to safety in the early 30s to get them away from Hitler. It's like, well, there's an incredible story that is politically evergreen, you know, or is simply evergreen. It's like action adventure drama that anybody would be interested in. And, you know, that's really how my brain works. And so I hope that, you know, that kind of enthusiasm for one thing and another really works just by mashing it all together. So, you know, so when I'm talking about electric bikes, I was an environmental studies major. I have major issues with battery technology and extraction in general. And I think there are huge hurdles to overcome so that the battery industry in particular become, doesn't become just another ugly business. Already, 
you know, Bolivian water rights activists are being murdered by mining companies in South America just because they're like inconvenient, you know, and this is the story of extraction throughout history. So, you know, I think part of my job is, you know, to tell a whole and very honest story, even as I'm promoting an industry, because I think, I think the electric vehicle industry is super important, but I'm not just a blind booster. I think it's our obligation to also promote further research and, you know, to make the technology better. But the, the whole reason that I'm following it since 2009 is because it's like, we're in 1901 all over again. Like in 1901, there were 400 motorcycle manufacturers in the United States. And that's, we're going to be there if we aren't already, you know, in the next year or two. We're, there's this explosion and we have no idea who the next Harley Davidson is going to be. You know, it may be Harley Davidson. It may be Monday motorbikes. It could be Super 73. It could be Damon. It could be, you know, who knows? Uh, no one could have predicted in 1901 who the major players were going to be. And I think a knowledge of history is really grounding. It's like I have a sanguine view of this industry and what the potential is for any of these businesses to survive. What do you think's next? You know, in EV, how, as you said, that there's a lot to learn. And it's not perfect, but what is that that change as we go into, you know, if we forecast the next 10, 20 years and there's the Generation Z, Zoomers are zooming around in motorcycles and are they all going to be an EV or are we going to totally transition? Yeah, there's not going to be any overnight transition. It's just impossible. There isn't enough lithium on the planet right now to switch over to 100% EV. So there's pretty significant hurdles to that transition. I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I think there's going to continue to be petroleum-powered vehicles. You're going to see a lot more synthetic fuels out there, which are better in some ways because they can be made cleaner, but they still produce carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. So that's kind of a bummer. Any internal combustion engine produces carbon dioxide, which is not great for global warming. So, you know, it's our job to make sure that the power that's generated for electric vehicles is, is as green as possible and that they're made as green as possible. But to answer your question about, you know, that's just about the transition. I think we're going to see more hydrogen. I think we're going to see a whole mixed bag of vehicles. But in terms of like usage, I mean, what we're seeing is, is clear as day. And I've been telling every CEO who talks to me or asks me the question about, well, what's what's it going to take? What's the tipping point? You know, how are things going to go with with EVs? And I say, well, you know, if you want mass adoption, you need le legislation. You know, it's just going to be legislation. That's what happened in China. They banned small internal combustion motors from the center of their big cities. Boom, they got 4 million EVs on the road and walking around Shanghai on the street. I was there two years ago. It was quiet. There was no smog. It was awesome. There were thousands and thousands of little electric scooters and motorcycles and three-wheel delivery trucks and all this crazy EV stuff. And then there were gas-powered cars. But, you know, I have been in countries where you have thousands and thousands of small two-strokes on the road and it's incredibly noisy and the air is, you know, your eyes are watering because of the, the fumes. So I was like, wow, this is not bad. You know, I this is the future I can I can hang with. It's quiet and it's clean. Okay, I get it. But if you look around on the streets today in San Francisco, I can walk out my door and I guarantee you within five minutes, I'm going to see an electric vehicle go by, whether it's a Tesla or it's somebody on a, a Lime scooter or another electric scooter company, 
they're everywhere and you see them constantly. So the first point of contact is not going to be a Tesla for EVs. It's going to be a stand-up scooter or a little chair scooter. Number one, because they're convenient, they're cheap, and they're actually pretty fun. So whenever anybody asks me from a company, like, well, what do you think is the best entry point? I, I say, it's fun. You make it fun and people will come. People don't buy vehicles for safety. I mean, I'm just talking strictly about what attracts people, right? I think that companies have an obligation to provide safety. And I think that it should be encouraged, much like it should be required to be integrated into vehicles, especially since it's fairly easy, since an EV has a brain. <laughs> I think it behooves companies to definitely include those. But just from a standpoint of a consumer, I think people mostly buy vehicles because they're fun. So the better you can make something fun, you know, the better for everyone. That was Paul Darlene's. His latest curated exhibit at the Peterson Museum in L.A. shares something in common with this podcast. Just as I love talking with visionaries who had to make a pivot to go all in on their world-changing idea, Paul's next exhibit, which opens on April 14th and will run for a full year, is called Electric Revolutionaries, and it focuses on visionary designers who have put their careers on the line in the service of electric vehicles. So whether you're a fan of motorcycle history, the culture, or style, or just want to see the latest EV motorcycles, check out the Vintagent for a really cool ride with Paul Earlings. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>